0: Welcome back to Hit Subscribe, where we chat with key leaders in the e-commerce space to discuss the present and future state of commerce optimization. Today's episode is a little bit different, but also kind of the same as the first episode. In fact, the actual is just the same. We're here with our three hosts, Chase, Kristen, and myself, Katrina, to kind of reflect on this past quarter of Hit Subscribe and the episodes that we've released so far, as well as recap, which Kristen has been hosting. And just what our main takeaways have been and the reflections that we've had. So we'll get right into it. I'm going to start off by posing this question to Kristen. If you're ready, and even if you're not ready, what has your main takeaway been?
1: Do I have to stick to one main takeaway? Because, you know, my whole segment is that every week I'm doing like five main takeaways of the week. I've got a couple and I think they're all super connected. And anybody who listens to my segment is, has probably heard me say this a hundred times now. The craziest takeaway for me this season has been, no matter what I'm talking about, the constant theme underlying it is change and the lack of playbooks. The role of D2C especially, we're talking about D2C all the time, about e-commerce, and it's just constantly in flux. Every time that that the marketers on Twitter say something is dead, two months later it comes back and then dies again and then swings back around. We've talked about a lot, like kind of the phases of D2C. You know, we had the the golden era kind of when it boomed and everybody was excited about e-commerce. Then we went into COVID, where naturally e-commerce had a big boom, and everybody was saying retail is dead. We've come out of COVID and now quite literally every single brand that I have talked to is looking at retail, increasing their retail budgets, or changing how they team and resource retail versus D2C. And it's been a really interesting conversation just to see how much that D2C changes as a part of the whole omni-channel strategy for brands. And you're seeing everything from You know, there's some brands that are completely pulling out of D2C by the end of this year, who it's just not worth the cost for them. There's other brands who are pretty much 90% D2C and are now going into retail. And then there's brands that are somewhere in the middle and they're figuring out D2C is is our, our landscape for data, for testing, for understanding the customers, and for making the retail stronger of a presence and really tying it all together And I just I think it's so interesting that it's in constant flux. What I think the tactical learnings from that are, because I'm always trying to bring it back down to that's a really hard thing to hear as an operator is like, oh, the biggest takeaway is that nothing ever stays the same and winning is so hard. I think (laughs) the tactical piece of that is everything that you hear as a playbook has to be taken as just a playbook and as just a starting point. And then from there, the brands that are winning are the brands that are building. I did a whole episode on this idea of intangible brand equity, where you can't even really quantitatively track and understand why your brand is working, but you've created a persona. You've created a world where your consumers want to keep coming back to you. So the biggest like takeaway is that no two brands can act the same and no brand can look at another brand and copy and paste and have the same success. It's really about knowing your customers, talking to your customers, retaining your customers, and then figuring out where all these channels kind of work together. It's been a very interesting season so far. I have learned a lot this year. I have a question.
0: (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. Because I have also heard that, like the changing environment of D2C and retail... But I'm curious from the conversations that you've had with merchants who have decided to kind of invest more into retail or are completely pivoting from D to C to retail. What has been the appeal of retail? Just because face value, you are a lot more limited in a sense Mm -hmm. because you don't have the great expanse of the internet. It's very physical, but obviously there is an appeal. What kind of patterns have you seen with that?
1: Yeah, I'd say, especially for CPG brands, the appeal is coming from the increased cost of CAC on D2C. Finding and then converting customers online used to be kind of this like put $10 in, get $20 out kind of game. And now it's extraordinarily difficult, extreme Mm. competition, really expensive. And they know that their customers are shopping in grocery stores, Sprouts, Whole Foods, Air One. Then you're going into like King Supers, Kroger, Albertsons, HEB. i I'm trying to list different grocery stores from all over the country and not just stick to the ones I know. Target, all of these things, really, it's exposure. So trying to find new audiences, connect with those consumers, stand out on the shelves so people try your product. And then the more interesting piece is it's not just about discovery and then building loyalty on D2C. It's also if you have a consumer that is very loyal to you, Magic Spoon is a brand that does this really well, where you might be on a subscription online because your family eats cereal all the time. Every day you're feeding it to your kids. But if you run out, you can go to Walmart and still buy a box. Retail is about really its exposure, getting in front of more consumers and the right consumers. And then being available everywhere that your consumer is shopping so that they'd never choose somebody other than you.
2: Mm. I'll also have one more thing. How many times have you been walking through the grocery store thinking, "Okay, I only need these five things." And you end up checking out and going yep. home and you have 11 things in your cart and you're like, <laughs> "How the hell did this happen?" Oh my god. That's, That's kind of one of the reasons. I mean, I know everyone understands that, yeah. but like you don't get that on D2C sites, on CPG sites because you just land on their site and they only sell what they sell. So there's no other way to kind of walk through and go, this would go well with that. Or like, I mm-hmm. totally forgot about this thing from a totally different vertical that I also just bumped into. And now I'm buying aluminum foil, things like that. <laughs> you just forget about yep. that you need and you just end up coming home with them.
0: Yeah, I've exactly. actually seen, even in conversations that I've had with people as well, what worked in D2C before was largely like single skew e-commerce websites yep. where you sell one thing, it's super niche. But now like in order to stay competitive, they are having to expand into other products because you have to increase your revenue somehow. And like there's a ceiling if you're only selling one product.
1: Yeah, and when you're working with the right retailers who give you access to retail data as well, it starts to also become informative of if we started in face wash, what does somebody else put in their cart At the grocery store when they buy our face wash and it helps them start to think about other product categories or food going from you know cereal to cereal bars cereal to oatmeal being able to understand exactly what chase was saying when people are just kind of doing that more shopping behavior versus buying behavior like scrolling the shelves and walking through what else do they pick up and then a lot of times brands will use their d2c channel to talk to their customers figure out hey we think that you guys would like oatmeal. Are we right? If so, what flavors? Then they can roll out that test on D2C with their most loyal consumers, bring it to retail, and thrive in both places. Granted, I just almost laid out a playbook, and that is not a go-to playbook. (laughs) 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 That doesn't work for everybody. You can't copy and paste.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's totally fair. And actually, that's a good point. Like, It doesn't work for everybody. I think some... You even mentioned like some brands are completely pulling out of D2C. Some brands are primarily D2C and kind of now entering into the retail space. I do think that depending on your brand and your audience and how you engage with your customers, I think the ratio of D2C and retail can be largely different depending on who you are.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Just to give people like a a solid concrete example, Wandering Bear Coffee has been about 90% D2C for a while. And now they're looking at going into retail because they've had success and feel very confident. On the other side, you're having brands like Once Upon a Farm has been in retail very heavy for a while. Baby food makes sense for retail, but they're doing a lot of optimization on their D2C site as well. So you can kind of see how it's similar product category, but you can go either way. It just depends on finding those consumers and making that brand equity. I'm going to pass now. Chase, I would love to hear what your main takeaway has been, especially talking to partners. I love talking to partners because they work across so many brands. I feel like they have the sneakiest insights.
2: So I'm going to cheat off of you also. I'm going to give two takeaways. One, because you stole my takeaway. So we're going to argue about that a little bit later. But the only thing we truly know is that we don't know anything. That's what I've gotten in Q2. There are no playbooks that match everybody. Even if you're talking same vertical, same product, you cannot measure coffee company A versus coffee company B. Because yeah. you may be selling different quantities, you may be in a different region of the world in the country, you may be different flavors, you may have a different philosophy, different vision, all these kinds of things. The idea that one playbook or like, hey, our competitor is doing this, we should do that. It doesn't always translate. From the agency perspective, everybody always says test everything. And I know that's blown out of the water. And there's way too many you know acronyms and shorthand words that we can use and buzzwords. But testing everything really is a huge takeaway that I've had. Everything from like button color, button text, which sounds stupid, but you should see some of the experiments some of these agencies are running that are driving massive, massive results. Everything from that all the way to landing pages, to funnels, to you know, what happens if you click this thing, what page do we bring them to, cross those upsells, all that kind of stuff. Test everything. Try things. And then doubling down on what Kirsten said, talk to your customers. You know, it's really easy to test if you have an agency, if you work with one, you know, run a couple A-B tests here and there but talk to your customers. It's a huge deal. They'll often tell you exactly what you may be Mm -hmm. thinking or maybe what you're not be thinking, which kind of goes back to the A-B testing thing anyway. So I'd say the only thing we know is that testing works and talking to your customers work. Otherwise, play around with it. See what works. Things get really interesting. I do have one other takeaway, but I don't want to ramble too long. So any other questions or comments on that one before I change?
1: Ooh, I love that you said both test everything But talk to your customers as well, Mm -hmm. because there is an unlimited amount of things you can test on the D2C side. That is what is both exciting and so fun and paralyzing and crippling and overwhelming for operators. So I think when you balance the two, when you talk to your customers, you get a better idea of what is worth testing in the first place. And then you can really validate against them. I would say it's the number one thing that, you know, when I'm working with brands, It's the first thing we do is call customers, talk to them on the phone, not just like surveys, not just emails back and forth. Actually talk to your customers. Customers love talking to brands. You'd be surprised. Mm -hmm. You'd also be surprised how few brands have ever talked to a single customer. And I think if there's one thing you do after listening to this episode, find at least one customer and just call them on the phone. Just talk to them.
2: We also had a uh, presentation at ChargeX back in April in D.C., where one of the agencies brought up this idea that sometimes customers will, in surveys, tell you they want certain things. And then when you build that product or you make that change or whatever it is, it flops. Yep. So sometimes even the customers don't know what they're asking for. So that (laughs) whole like talk to them and A-B test and try multiple things, that's a huge piece that I think a lot of people miss.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I was talking with some... Oh, it was um, David from Simprove. And I brought this up before, but he talked to a bunch of customers where they like had a mishap with the shipping or whatever and they called every single one of their customers and that's actually something i heard back in account management that was really successful for some ddc brands was getting on the phone and calling their customers to you know reconcile complaints but also to ask for feedback and that's actually if i were to remove myself from this e-commerce space and what i have now experienced being like in account management as a regular person, (laughs) but I would have been like, that's not efficient to call customers because, you know, e-commerce is all about efficiency, right? Because it's all like online and that's all about optimization. But it's interesting that it actually is a lot more efficient sometimes to Mm -hmm. do the more like menial task of calling up every single one of your customers because you get real conversations with people and they get into things that you wouldn't have learned from like a survey response online, for example. Yeah. So it's quite
1: interesting. Often, non-scalable behavior creates scalable opportunity.
0: Whoa. Whoa. That's a sound bite.
1: <laughs> That's a sound bite, baby.
2: <laughs> Double down on that. If no one's read the book, This Won't Scale, put out by the Drift marketing team. I know everybody, Great as book. you tr- start to scale a company, you try to figure out like what are the things we can repeat? What are the things we can actually scale? The book, This Won't Scale, it's like 30 pages. It's super short. Go get it. I think it's actually might even be free. Maybe don't quote me on that, but it really may done. be but read this one scale. Some 99. of the best some of the best marketing tactics are the ones that won't scale. Call your customers, talk to them, go meet them in person, all those kinds of things.
1: Yeah.
2: I'm gonna blast into my second takeaway really quickly. Loyalty. And I don't have a solution for this. So this is more just kind mm-hmm. of a conversation piece, but loyalty is simultaneously broken and also wide open for change, for yes. innovation. The classic thing you think of when loyalty, you know—you go buy something and they give you 100 points or they give you one point per dollar you spend or whatever it is, that doesn't work. I think we all agree that's over. That kind of customer engagement is done. It just doesn't work. If you're just plugging something in and letting it run, it's not going to work. No one's going to engage with that. This is the part where I don't have a solution necessarily, but there's a lot of opportunities to build a loyalty solution in a non-traditional way. I think the idea of surprise and delight, a lot of people are talking about that's something that might not be able to scale because you don't necessarily know when you're going to surprise and delight. I think the idea of cross-sells and upsells thoughtfully makes sense. As long as you're not presenting it as a sale, you're presenting it more of as a thought solution. Content even can be loyalty-based. Yeah. I think some sort of gated content or some sort of like, hey, you bought a product. Here's a cool thing that you might not know about it. Linking to a blog post, linking to an engagement survey, something like that. There's a lot of different ways that a lot of different brands are kind of redefining the term loyalty, which I know in itself is a buzzword, and I hate that I'm talking about that, but <laughs> I think it's wide open. So it's really going to be interesting over the next three to six months through the next like five years to see how yeah. loyalty gets redefined. Because I think the traditional standard is just done.
1: Yeah. This is actually a huge, a huge thing that I've been thinking about and reading about as well. There is even, I mean there's been big stories of a couple big, big, big brands like Sephora, Now I can't think of another one. There's like a fat, oh, Dunkin' Donuts. Even they're like pulling back on their loyalty programs, changing the points because it's not really working for either the consumer or the brands. So I think it's really interesting. And I also don't have an answer, but there's something very exciting. It feels like there's something bubbling under the surface where we're going to see a brand come out and do something completely different and i think Mm. it'll be incremental all these little pieces with surprise and delight and in-person activities and content and brand partnerships and all these things that'll come together but i just feel like we're waiting to see the next i don't know like the next adidas to come out and kind of blow everyone out of the water with like really cool cultural moments Interesting, though, that also the brands that I think are doing it really well right now are often the brands who have been around for a while and are even like coming back around. Like, how is American Eagle in the news every week? And they were who I shopped at at high school and they've kind of brought themselves back around. Same with Abercrombie and Fitch. So it's like, will it be a new brand? Will it be an old brand that's reinventing themselves for a newer generation? How does Gen Z, Gen Alpha impact what loyalty looks like? we could start to get into crazy stuff like ai and vr and all that that is coming into the retail space but loyalty and like what makes a brand worth going back to i think is a question that everybody is looking at and nobody has answered yet
2: but i'll give two quick examples before i pass it off to the great cat to close us out one good example one bad example bad example starbucks this has been six, seven, maybe even longer years ago. But they went away from gathering the points to get to a thing. So when I used to walk in, they'd say like, you've gotten enough loyalty points. Your drink is free. It's simple. It's easy. It's a and delight. I don't have to pay for it. That's great. They're all points now. Or I think they call them stars. And every time I walk in, I've got a billion Starbucks stars because I walk in and they're like, do you want to use your stars for this? And I'm like, I don't know what that means. I don't know what I get them. I don't know for what you're asking me. Is it a me? one-to-one? Is this like... <laughs> Do I get an extra shot? Like I I don't. It doesn't make any sense to me. Am I I a star? (laughs) Yeah. Just tell me it's a free drink. Take it off my tab. End up being free. That's a great way to do it, and that's a simple version, but backwards. So I think Starbucks Um, went went the bad way. I
1: have to interrupt you because I actually recently saw a headline, and it was an article about Starbucks that said, "Is Starbucks trying to become the next bank, like the next online bank?" Yeah. Because now it's they're like put money in the app and then just use that to buy your coffee. Which has a weird connection to like membership kind of feel type thing.
2: Yeah. I don't know. Understand.
1: Very interesting. Starbucks has done some, some strange stuff.
2: I was going to sneak the word membership in what you were talking. I think membership <laughs> and loyalty go hand in hand, but we're not going to do a hard sell on the new recharged Memberships product. Wink, wink. Good example for everyone. A brand that, that I really love is called Battlebox. They use Recharge. They've been around forever. Mm. John Roman's the guy who runs it. They just hit 100 boxes. They ship monthly. They do monthly curated boxes. They just hit number 100. What they did for 100 was they put five golden tickets into five random boxes and shipped them out. Winners get a flight out to an undisclosed location where you get to go shoot a tank at a target. And if you hit the tank, you get $100,000. The key part about this being loyalty related is they didn't advertise this in advance, So I think it's part of like, if you're an existing member, you get this Um. cool thing for free. And also it wasn't a sales tactic. So this was not a like sign up in order to get this. You had to be signed up in previous months in order to be eligible for this. So it wasn't even a sales tactic to say, you know, this is coming. You should buy your box now. It's all surprise and delight. There's no additional charge. It's nothing off the back of the customer. So I think it's a really cool way to kind of drive additional value for loyalty. It's like, I was excited for this box anyway. But now I have this additional opportunity to get this cool, unique experience thing here. That I think is a, is a cool way that a lot of brands might start moving as well.
1: And do you know what Battlebox does the best and why they knew exactly where to put these winners and what activity to do?
2: Because they talk to their customers.
0: They talk to their customers all the time. <laughs> all the time. <laughs> I was like, wait, I know where this is going. I've seen this episode before. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen this episode
1: before, I swear.
2: Sending it off to Kat for her final takeaway. Kat, what is your main takeaway from Q2?
0: Okay. I am gonna talk about that, but I had so many thoughts that I was waiting to like release my. Oh, hand send me.
2: it. Sorry. I'll, I I'll have, take like, that back. Okay, hey, there's not again. that
0: many thoughts. I have a couple of thoughts. So the first one <laughs> though is I'm an avid Starbucks person. And I just have to say, even though I myself am a member and like use the rewards. They have really gone downhill. I complain about the rewards all the time with my friends. They've cut the value down. It's yep. kind of, and like it's so hard to get stars now. And like their double rewards days or whatever, you have to like order three things like three days in a row. And I'm like between
2: like one and four p.m. Like no, I'm not doing that.
0: <laughs> like, it's, that's a good example of how like you do have to make it easy for your customers to be a part of your program and like yeah, reap the rewards also. But anyway. was my first thought and then my second thought was battle box first of all do you work for battle box chase because you sold that really well (laughs) (laughs) like you second of all Crunch labs also does something similar they have like a golden ticket that they in some of the boxes that they give out you can like win an opportunity to go visit the crunch labs in person which is super cool for kids. and they're in all of the videos like you get to see the lab in in their promotional videos or mark videos. And kids love that stuff. Like the videos are all part of their box program anyways. Like you have to watch the videos to learn about the thing that you're doing in the box. So my kid is subscribed. And so now I'm like a Crunch Labs user. But anyways, it's really cool. That actually does kind of lead me into my main takeaway point, which is interesting because you guys had similar topics and mine is like not talking about how change is constant. But it kind of is because my main takeaway was that I've heard a lot of conversation that ends up leading into this underlying concept of the digitalization of in-person experiences and kind of going back and forth between the things that we experience face to face bringing that online and then going back and being like actually like let's make this human mm-hmm. again and let's do more in-person events and kind of that like cycling of what works then and what works now and it always coming back into the same things so people love convenience. And that comes to the internet and e-commerce, but also people cannot run away from their human aspect and the fact that they crave relationship and those conversations that you get in stores and things like that. So this has been coming up quite a bit. And in one of my recent episodes as well with Herd and Grace, they talk about how they're like the neighborhood butcher shop and kind of bringing that experience like going into the butcher shop online and like having it be quite personalized. So I do think like this is super vague, my main takeaway, but I it is something that I've kind of seen which is just like people constantly go back to what's familiar even after they've iterated and changed things and people crave a human connection whether or not they like to admit it. It does end up changing back into being like how can I have a real conversation with a real human being? Like mm-hmm. I don't want to chat with AI.
1: I don't think it's vague. I think it's actually, you kind of put a bow on everything that Chase and I were saying as well. Like you explain what omni-channel means. And I think a lot of times when we say omni-channel, we immediately go, it's retail and D2C. It's those two channels. When really it's the brands that are actually being omnichannel are doing like wholesale retail, owned retail, small retail, specialty retail, events, influencers, Facebook, Amazon. There's so many pieces of it. And it really is all... It comes down to building... I keep thinking about it in this, like, building a universe around Mm. your products so that wherever the consumer is interacting with it, it is still part of the story. Like, I think Disney or Marvel are the top examples of this, where, you know, Marvel started as a comic book and then went into movies, and now is, like, there's Marvel rides at Disney, there's Marvel stores, you can Mm -hmm. go to all these experiences... It is like building all these touch points in different physical and digital arenas and then making sure they all come together, which is very difficult tactically, but I think it just starts with, you have to start with that, like, what is the story? Why do we exist? What are we doing in this world? And who are the customers? And then how do we service them? Also, I think we all learned that very hard lesson in COVID, no matter how Mm. introverted you think you are or how homebody of a person you think you are, me. Um, <laughs> evidently, we actually like to see people in real life.
0: <laughs> yeah, and also like just in general. I know I said it was very vague, but I think I've been very intrigued by like the psychology of commerce and just the way that really successful brands they do end up having to really understand and like research their audience and get into how their customers think about the world and themselves and their products in order to get them, you know, encourage them to purchase. So I feel like that kind of just ties in again with the digitalization of in-person experiences, the way that people view the world and relationships. And it is like a very psychological experience to like purchase and like press submit, especially if you have like bills you have to pay for in the middle of a recession. Like how can I justify a purchase for something that isn't mandatory, for example? The psychology behind commerce and even
1: going further, psychology behind loyalty is something that I've been thinking so much about. So much so that I even, one of our recaps is literally titled American Eagle and Wendy's on embedding your products into culture. Because I think these big brands really become part of our world. I mean, just look at one of the biggest movies this year was about literally the creation of the Nike Air Jordan. And it's mm-hmm. a, an incredible story from a marketing, from a product perspective. But it's also about how a brand became so deeply embedded in culture that is still selling just at astronomical rates. And Nike is so much more than a shoe company or a clothing company. Nike is a whole destination in and of itself. I think it's a very big, big topic right now, so much so that even even our boys, you know, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, we love them. They're so cute. They did so good.
0: Yeah. Cool. Well, I'm going to close this out and you can say however much you want, but I'm going to ask what our predictions are for Q4 for the holiday season. This episode is recorded now, but it's going to be posted in July. So people are starting to prep for BFCM in the summer. I'm going to start so nobody else steals what I'm about to say and I have to think of something new. But (laughs) my prediction is that I think customers are still gonna be buying stuff. Like I actually don't think it will be a huge downturn of purchasing, but I think customers are gonna purchase more from one place and like group things together in like a more like marketplace settings versus purchasing from multiple different brands and websites to take advantage of things like free shipping, etc., just with the way that the economy is and if they have a membership, for example. Dang it, you stole mine. Uh.
2: <laughs> I love that. KLF, what you got? I'll go last.
1: Oh, well, I was thinking about, you know, last year we saw a lot of brands do these like tiered discounts. Like if you buy one thing, it's this much off. You buy two things, it's this much off. And then every day their sales were bigger and better. And so I was thinking about higher AOV with brands this year. So if I'm going to purchase from Bloom I'm probably going to buy quite a few things from Bloom at the sale versus going to a couple different brands. I know who I'm loyal to now and I know where I want to spend more money. But another one, I think, I think that there's going to be an interesting crossover of gifting and e-commerce this year. I think that we have tried to kind of work into, you know, buy while the sale is going, buy one, get one free, send it to your friend. But I'm not sure that anyone is we've like fully gone into it. And I know that just from my perspective, if I've got a list of people I want to shop for, I want to shop from brands I'm not sure that they know, but that I love. And I also want to buy myself stuff while I'm there. So maybe this yep. is a hope more than a prediction that we see stuff like buy one, get one free, put it in a gift box and we'll send it straight to your friends. So you don't have to love mail that. it. Gifting could be really interesting this year.
2: Mm, that's I cool. agree. I'm going to build off that, put kind of a generic term behind it, and then give a specific example. I think we're going to see a lot more creativity in January, February, March, based on what people do this holiday season. Everybody mm. gets creative through the holidays, and I think gets awesome. I think we're going to start to see all that creativity become the norm. So talk yeah. a little bit about loyalty. I love this idea of like, buy two of these things. One will ship to you. One will put in a gift box and ship it somewhere else. I'm also thinking, you know, when you buy things for holidays and it says, like, buy it before December 20th and we'll make sure it's there by December 25th. I think shipping has become this kind of big black box and no one really knows how to solve that. One of the specific ideas I think we're going to start to see is like, hey, we're not Amazon. This is not going to be here tomorrow. But if you buy it on, you know, July 10th, it will be there on July 17th like a random middle of the year, like there's no holiday, there's no r- like reason about it, but it's better customer service. It's better communication up front. Hmm. I think we're going to start to see some of those things become the norm. So between like the shipping thing, the gifting thing, clear communications, I think a lot of that stuff is going to start to become the norm. And I'm excited to see what the creative things people are launching in the holidays become the norm next year.
1: I'm going to put one last prediction because it it's a cheap shot because it's always right. It's going to start earlier this year.
2: And record highs. Yeah. yeah. It's going to be bigger year, and it's going to be just earlier. A
0: little earlier.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. Agreed.
0: <laughs> the biggest sale. We've never done this before. <laughs> yeah. Exactly.
2: And Starbucks is going to keep taking our stars away.
0: <sighs> <laughs> Starbucks. Not that. Not the stars. Okay. <laughs> stars. Awesome. <laughs> I have a star. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. Thank you to myself for being here. I'm just- <laughs> Thank you to me know. for hosting this podcast.
2: You did a great job.
0: <laughs> Thank y'all. And we will chat soon. Thanks, guys.